You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to brilliant, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Nick Bomarito. Nick is an assistant professor of philosophy at the University at Buffalo. His research focuses on questions in virtue ethics, moral psychology, and Buddhist philosophy. He's the author of Inner Virtues and the forthcoming book, Seeing Clearly, A Buddhist Guide to Life. In this episode, we talk the aims of Buddhism, our mental habits, mindfulness, karma, Buddhist metaphysics, and so much more. Hello, Nick, and welcome to the Yummy Podcast. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. So, Nick, tell me, how did you get interested in philosophy? You know, I didn't really know that philosophy was a thing until I went to college. So I I was an unhappy computer science major. <laughs> uh, and I spent so many nights looking for, like, some semicolon that I'd missed. Uh, and I took some philosophy classes. I did, I did my undergrad at University of Michigan. And I took philosophy class from Louis Loeb and a class from Rashna Kamtakar. Those were my two first classes. And uh, I was really like, oh, this is a thing you can do. This one, I've just been hassling people by asking them questions. <laughs> like, you could really, this is a subject of study of like how, you know, how are you supposed to live? How does the world work and stuff? What was, so what, then, what was the courses, you know, about what were some of those questions? So the Louis Loeb's course was a... Um, a problems introduction. So it was a lot of like, you know, arguments for and against God, arguments about free will. And Rashna Kamtakar's was an ancient Greek philosophy course. So it was like, we read like the Republic and a lot of Plato and Aristotle. And, you know, I just, you know, I loved both of them. I just thought, oh, this is so fun to think about. And like, you know, I just felt like, yeah, everyone's just getting through the world and they haven't really thought about how things work. And, and I mean, I guess, depending on how you think of philosophy, like I had been interested in Buddhism before that. But I was like thinking of it as like a religion. So I just didn't have the concept of philosophy until much later. And then I was then I retroactively applied it to a bunch of stuff. Did you did you change your major? Yeah, I did change my major. My parents were not happy with it initially. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, um, but, you know, I had an older brother who majored in marketing. And at the time he was having trouble getting a job. And so I just thought, you know, if I can't get a job anyway, I might as well do something I like. And I was from Michigan, so I paid in-state tuition. So it wasn't that much money. How do your parents feel now about about your decision? Uh, they come around to it. Uh, <laughs> nice. They've come around to it. <laughs> so speaking of Buddhism, is Buddhism a religion, a, a philosophy, both? A lot of people argue about this. You know, it's like all these things. It turns. It's like, well, what's a religion? And you know. People sometimes are like, you know, in the in the South, sometimes you're like, football is our religion. And you're like, you're like, maybe it's they're not exaggerating. <laughs> maybe <it kind> of <laughs> is or, or, you know, we have, there's things that are like structure people's lives and they think that like it has supernatural aspects like astrology is like this. But, you know, people don't really think of it as a religion because it doesn't have this kind of formal structure. So, I mean, like anything, the boring answer is kind of like, well, it depends you know, what's a religion? I think nowadays it's often kind of code for 
whether someone wants to have a naturalized version of Buddhism or whether they think that there's some essentially supernatural stuff going on. Like, so for example, there's a, there's a Buddhist text about the benefits of mindfulness. Uh, and people who think that Buddhism is not a religion really don't cite it that much. And part of the reason is the benefits are all like, you can fly through the air, you can remember your previous lives, you can, you know, there are all these kind of supernatural things. And you know, so, and traditionally, Buddhism has like different kind of supernatural beings, there's different types of gods, there's different types of hell realms, there's different, you know, uh, and that's just taken as, you know, for granted as the background to it or part interwoven with it. And so um, when modern, you know, European American people encounter it, sometimes they're like, oh, well, that's not really important. What's important is this other naturalizable stuff, stuff that's consistent with, you know, science and doesn't posit anything spooky or whatever. But um, for most Buddhists historically, certainly, and even in the world now, um, they accept that there are supernatural beings that intervene and they think that's just an important part of Buddhism. So I don't like to like say, oh, it's Buddhism is this and not that. I think like Buddhism is like a huge kind of playground for you to think about a bunch of different things. And some people have a kind of naturalized version of it. Some people don't. And there's different trade-offs there. But um, I don't like to say like, oh, Buddhism doesn't have any of that or does. I mean, uh, one of the things that Buddhism asserts is that there is a problem and there's, there's also a solution to it. So, so what is this problem? And what is the solution? So people often talk about the problem is the, the Sanskrit is dukkha and usually translated as suffering, which is pretty good. But that kind of makes it seem like it's something that you have to experience, like you experience suffering. And that's certainly part of it. But kind of the it's it's a little bit broader in the sense of uh, it's a kind of state you're in that you might not be aware of at a given time. So it's kind of like being in danger, like being in danger is bad, but you might be in danger and not know it. Um, or you might be like sick and not not realize it yet. Um, so it's kind of broader like that. It's like that. Life has a bunch of troubling aspects. Like we, we want things to last. We want to get what we want and we want to keep it. And the problem is like life doesn't seem to work that way, sadly. And so the solution is about looking really hard at these harsh facts of, of life and trying to form a, a kind of way of experience, training your way of experiencing the world so that you accept those things and sort of can be at ease with them. You write that, and this is me quoting you, the central aim of Buddhism is changing how you relate to yourself and the world. And you note that, quote, it's hard to overstate the depth, the difficulty and the diversity of these changes. Can you explain this, this relations, the changes? <laughs> and I know this is going to be a lot here. Uh, uh, can you explain the relations, the changes and this difficulty that's, that's hard to overstate? Yeah. So I think it's a lot about how we think of ourselves. The idea is that we kind of implicitly think of ourselves as kind of separate, persisting things in the world. And for Buddhists, mostly that's a mistake, you know, and you can kind of see this like in 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 normal cases. Um, so there's a kind of tra tradition back to the Enlightenment and even before where it views kind of person to person interactions as like, you know, I meet you and then it's like I have certain goals and I want certain stuff and I have certain you know, I, I just have a whole identity and then I meet you and then we kind of negotiate that. 
So that's one kind of picture. But I mean, philosophers from a bunch of different ways of thinking, like feminist philosophers, Buddhist philosophers have challenged that. And one way of challenging that is like, hey, it's not that we exist prior to this interaction. We kind of emerge out of interactions in this way. And so the the Buddhist kind of change is a kind of change in how you think about what you are and your place in the world. So it's a little bit like it's it's not quite like changing your identity. So you might have a certain identity that you want to shake like you like, oh, I keep thinking of myself as a failure and I need to change that identity. I need to think of myself as successful as whatever. But the reason that it's kind of deep and difficult is that like it's giving up the framework that involves having an identity at all in a certain way. Like you're just like, oh, that was all a kind of mistake and it's good enough for some purposes, but that's not really how it is. Um, and this kind of idea of seeing the world in terms of our, our own interests and in ourselves is infects our experience in certain ways. So like, uh, you know, I give a talk and it doesn't go well and I say, oh man, you know, not only did the talk go poorly, but like now I'm a bad philosopher, you know, I'm a failure or whatever. I feel like I have this property now. Um, and Buddhists are like, no, that's a kind of mistake. You know, there's no, there's no you to have this property and you're not, you're, there was an event that happened and that was, that was the event. But then all this other stuff is kind of baggage based on, on thinking that I'm a, a, a self in the world. And they, in fact, interestingly say it for the opposite too. So it's like, you know, it goes well and then everyone's clapping. Uh, and that's also considered kind of dangerous, like, cause that makes me think, oh, you know, I'm so great. I really do have this, like, I am a success and I have that property. So it's not like, it's not like, um, you have one or the other, but it's like giving up that whole game entirely. So someone might say, so what, what are you left with? <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah. You're kind of left with, wow, well, it's hard to, I guess you're not left with anything. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's, it's yeah, like these things are so hard to talk about without presuming. But I guess it's like you're left with I guess, the optimistic view is like in not in giving that up, you can say, well, there's a bunch of events that are happening and some of them are good and bad. And I want fewer bad ones and more good ones. And that allows me to like expand my sphere of concern. So it's like it's not. Uh, I can care more about what's happening with you because I'm not, I realize that the boundaries are, are kind of metaphysically cloudy. So let's, 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 let's put this in the example that you were referring to. So, so say instance, I do very well at a talk, right? Mm, yeah. And, and so I, I had this Buddhist mindset in which I, I say to myself, well, I, I, de I deny that I am, I had this identity <laughs> of being a success. Yeah. Right. So what is what is changing in that perspective? Is it is 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 it am I now able to relate to the crowd a little better or, or what happens as a result of that? Yeah, you're kind of not like even the sound of the applause is like it feels good because you feel like it says something about you and it validates you or whatever. And if you're not if you're not kind of concerned with that anymore, then you can like you know, you might be able to like take risks more or you might you're not hung up on whether people receive it in a certain way. You might you can be more invested in like how, you know, what what's beneficial to say and what's you know, you can say what you want to say without thinking like it's going to say something about who you are. That's like a, a kind of it's like freeing in that sense. But it's like part of it, it's like. It's so much of our everyday way of thinking, it presumes 
something something like a self that it's like it's hard to make sense of like you have to give up a lot of your everyday way of relating to things. So I, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to throw this question in here because it just made me made me think. So sure. before our conversation, I just got finished working out. Right. Yeah. And when you work out, you are thinking about the self, <laughs> right? You had these goals in mind. I want to get stronger, right? The identity is important. Yeah. I go back, yeah. look at how much I lifted two weeks ago and, and then do it 80% of that. Like I'm connected yeah. to that previous person, et cetera, et cetera. And I have these goals. Yeah. Um, I don't want to fall off during, <laughs> during quarantine, et cetera, et cetera. And the identity is, it, it, is so rooted in that activity itself. Yeah. What does the Buddhist philosophy say about that? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I think, yeah, that's an interesting case. Like one of the things I like about how um, so in Tibetan, what, some of the one of the terms that's often translated as wealth is like literally something like usables. Right. So I like this way of thinking about rather than thinking like I work out and I'm like doing better than before. And I'm like, now I have a better body or like I have more money. But you can kind of think like, yeah, you know, this body is different and now it can do uh, stuff that it couldn't do before. And I can like use it for that. But it's like, it's less like it's tied up in like my sense of worth or my sense of self. But it's just like now this other stuff can get done that couldn't get done before. Like when you have money, it's like, like money itself, it's like, who cares? <laughs> but it's like, but you can do a bunch of cool stuff and it can allow you to do really helpful, important stuff with it. And so it's like thinking about it in terms of what you can do with it rather than like, what it says about you or just like having it just for the sake of having it, I think it's an important, uh, more practical upshot of, of this change. Let's talk about mental habits. What are, what are the mental habits that we, we tend to have as, as humans and why are they considered hindrances or poisons? So the reason they're, they're kind of hindrances is they sort of block you from seeing, from accepting how reality is from accepting that, you know, Maybe like you don't really exist. Things can't go on forever. Things are temporary. So the word that's usually translated as ignorance is avidya. And their vid is kind of like like vision or video. So it's like you can't see something. Uh, and there's a bunch of habits that come out from from not seeing this. And so, you know, one of them is, for example, for relating to other people, you know, uh, it's kind of convenient, but, you know, Buddhists are going to say ultimately harmful that we like we kind of file people as good or bad or as, oh, this person's a, uh, this person's a hippie, that person's a Republican, that person's whatever. We like, we like form these categories and it sort of crystallizes as we like, are like, oh, well, they're bad. So we don't have to care about them or we don't have to whatever. And it's like, you're, you're sort of projecting a kind of static property or a static essence that you think that they have. And that's a mistake, according to Buddhists. And we do that again. So we can do that for other people. We can do that for ourselves, too. We kind of experience things as like in, in terms of what's good or bad or neither for me, for for me and what it says about me or my goals and my aims. So it's just like I'm I'm going somewhere and there's like a, a huge line and I'm like, oh, God, I have to go. I have stuff I got to get done. Right. Just like or, you know, even I guess more. To the point of what's happening now, it's like. I see someone cough and then I might like your visceral reaction is like, am I going to get something right? But you could have the reaction of like, oh, you know, I'm worried about them. Right. Or like, you know, I'm worried about us and containing this kind of this kind of virus or something like that. But 
that involves like breaking out of just a kind of natural way to experience things is in terms of like what you're trying to do and what your aims are. So are the are the mental habits this kind of kind of point to the previous uh, uh, response was seeing like these static identities? Yeah. And yeah. Is the mental habit being so concerned with the self? Mm hmm. Yep. Yep. OK. Is it is there ever a, is there a medium as, as far as <laughs> as far as the self is concerned? Like mm-hmm. so. So so I'm, I'm thinking about. Um, and, and I'm, I'm trying to kind of review in my head the little bit that I, that I know about Buddhism, but it, it is a kind of a denial of the self. And hence, that's why the self is connected to the yeah. identity. Right. Um, and so even my question, I, I think you, I think I kind of know your answer to this. It's like, <laughs> it's like either you're, you know, we might think, or either you're selfish or you're selfless. <laughs> and, and even how we think about being selfless, it still in our language, it still embodies some aspect of the self. Yep. And is the, 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 the Buddhist. Buddhist philosophy simply suggesting, no, it's no self to be ish or less in, in that yeah, regard. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, a lot of the kind of self-less kind of stuff is meant as to counteract. Like we have this strong tendency to look out for ourselves and, you know, or maybe like the people that we like. And to counteract that, you kind of put other people first. But that's, you know, Finally, it's supposed to be like that whole framework is is you ha- you got to give up, right? Uh, and I guess in terms of finding a middle ground, um, especially later Buddhists will say that like, you know, the the self is a kind of fiction. It's a kind of story we tell about who we are, and we can you know, we can start changing the story. And there's certain limits to the story, uh, and the story can be useful. Like it can you know that can be a useful that's telling that story can be like helpful for like getting me like getting myself to work out more because I'm telling this story and I want the story to go a certain way. And I think Buddhists, later Buddhists in particular will be like, that's fine. That's good. That's fine. But don't mistake the story for reality. Like in the same way of like, there's, you know, a lot of examples of like, we often talk about like, um, you know, the average student or whatever. And that's useful for certain purposes of figuring out what to do. But you shouldn't like mistakenly think that there is such a student, that that student is real. Like it's just it's just a useful fiction. And like thinking of the stories we tell about ourselves are the same can be the same way. They can be useful, but like don't get fooled is what Buddhists would say. Hmm. So the word karma, it's it's a it's a popular idea that we (laughs) have borrowed (laughs) from Buddhism and, and people typically use it when they think a person has gotten what they deserve, particularly punishment. Is this the full picture of karma? Oh yeah. So this is, yeah, this is it. So I guess one thing to, that I would want to say at the beginning is I, you know, for a long time I made this mistake too. I, I really thought since I encountered Buddhism first, I thought like that Buddhists made up all these ideas. So like, yeah. karma is I like, even hesitated, even as I was, yeah, I was saying yeah. that to you, I was like, well, what about Hinduism? But go but, ahead, yeah, go ahead. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, even like, you know, specialists when they're talking loosely will say this, but it's like, I, I think, uh, I try to keep in mind that's like, well, karma is like a pan-Indian idea and it has pre-Buddhist usages, uh, uh, but it's definitely important in Buddhism. So before Buddhism, it meant certain kinds of ritual action. You know, you like slaughter a horse in order to make the rains come or something like that. And so you have to do the action in a certain way to produce the the correct result or the result that you're looking for. And then it gets broadened to include just any action or like actions and results. So it definitely involves that we act in certain ways and that produces certain results. And 
it's tempting to use the language of like dessert or what people deserve. But um, I think that's not always appro- is it's not always appropriate. And there's it's worth keeping in mind that you can separate those. Like you can say that certain actions lead to certain results without thinking that those results are thereby deserved. So I always think like, you know, drinking a lot leads to being drunk and then leads to being hungover. Uh, but do people deserve a hangover? I don't know. They act in ways that cause a hangover. So I think that from a Buddhist point of view, you can accept that it's a there's a connection. It's like people act in ways that, in fact, produce dukkha or produce suffering. And it's totally compatible with thinking that the thing that nobody deserves suffering. They just act in ways that bring it about. So I, I think that the connection to punishment or 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 what's deserved uh, isn't isn't always um there in the text and isn't always central. Can I use can I use karma in this sense? If I get a journal article accepted or a book published. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can I say karma? <laughs> yeah, you did it. It's like and it's like that's a that's like the 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 sense there is like that's your karma. Like you put the time in to write the book. And so it's like you did it. And you can you can acknowledge that there's and traditionally Buddhists uh, uh also do the the Buddha is pretty clear that um, not all events are the result of karma. There's other factors. So like even in like you're getting an article published, just like there's other factors. Like you got you got reasonable referees. You got right, right. Uh, whatever. Um, but it's also like you acted in ways that that resulted in that. So it's your karma, right? So how will we know? How will we separate the difference between like luck and karma? No. Uh, um, it's hard to know. But the answer for almost all the karma stuff is like, it's really hard to know. Um, and we, it's hard to say things in a definitive way about what's, uh, what's someone's karma and what's not. And then, you know, there's issues about like, even like talking about this is kind of a loose way of talking. Like I'm talking about like, well, my karma and your karma, <laughs> right. whatever. But I think for Buddhist sense, it's practically minded. It's like, you're trying to solve a problem and solving the problem means like thinking about certain kind of action types and what those types generally produce. And if they generally produce stuff that's, uh, involves, um, you not seeing how the world is or, or people suffering more than you kind of want to avoid those action types. Uh, and I, I just want to be like, I described that, I think in a way that did not lean on anything about punishment or desert or anything. And that's, I think that's the kind of Buddhist, um, focus. They're focused on solving the problem. And so like, Lots of times punishment or dessert, it's not like they don't punish people or they don't think people deserve things, but it's like for the purpose of solving the problem, it's kind of neither here nor there most of the time. How would you briefly describe Buddhist met- metaphysics? Briefly, I would say it's <laughs> radical. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's it's interesting. This In philosophy, there's, a I think, one of the deep uh, differences in how Buddhists, not just Buddhists, but how Buddhists are approaching it and how contemporary metaphysicians are kind of approaching things is like, at least in analytic philosophy, um, uh, lots of times the project of metaphysics is like categorizing our common sense intuitions and trying to keep as many of them as you can in as consistent a way as you can. And, and Buddhism almost has the, it's like, Hey, we're suffering and we're in this bad state. And part of it is because things really are not the way that they seem. And so there's all it's you know sort of built into it is this idea that like of course the solution is going to have to be kind of revisionist and radical. Um, so uh, the main strands are like Buddhists really 
are not down with composite stuff. Like they don't think composite things are real. So the tradition, the traditional example is like a pile. So people talk about heap of sand. I always think of like a, for some reason, I think of a pile of eggs and the idea is basically like if I have, if I have a table and I have, you know, a dozen eggs piled up and you say, well, how many things are on the table? I can't say, oh, I have 13. I have 12 eggs and I have one pile. They're going to say, no, 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 the pile just is the eggs organized that way. And they're going to think of the self as working in the exact way. It's like it's a more complicated relation and there are more complicated bits. But like essentially the self is just bits organized in a certain way. They're not they're not extra things in the world. And then, of course, later Buddhists get even more radical where they think there's there's no even self essence. The the bits themselves exist in an only a kind of relational way they that like um for anything to be what it is everything else has to be what it is too things are sort of essentially dependent on everything else being the way it is It, it, it seems that accepting such metaphysics brings what, what you describe as an important ethical shift, particularly in regards to the self. We kind of talked about this, particularly in regards to the self and others. And I, I wonder if you could describe exactly this shift. Yeah, so I think that the shift is primarily engaged in the task of filing you in certain categories, because I think that. The you is a kind of fiction the way that like the average student is or the pile is. So I think the ethical shift is it kind of broadens your your sphere where it's like you can be really kind of invested in a lot of different things, which is like, you know, at once painful and overwhelming, but also like kind of empowering because it's now it's like. When you get a paper published, I'm like, yeah, great. <laughs> like, I can like really be invested in that and I can really be um, happy about it in a way that uh, I might not be able to if like I was like comparing myself with you or being like, oh, you know, I have to get more. I have to keep up or like, oh. I should have sent whatever like uh, I don't have to do any of that stuff and it allows me to just sort of more straightforwardly feel good about that and partly it involves not seeing things as having intrinsic qualities but as being kind of temporary and relational so it's like you know if I occupy a higher you know, rung on some hierarchy than someone else. I am not going to start thinking like, oh, that's because I'm better. And, you know, the cream rises to the top or whatever. And like, no, this is a temporary relational state that we occupy and we can, you know, that will change. And in fact, what has to happen is like, you know, I, you know, I <laughs> now certain actions can be done uh you know to bring about better results or to help other people or certain or certain things like that 
So I'm I'm sitting here thinking about uh, uh, I, I'm a very competitive person. I mean, I think anybody who grew up, <laughs> no, I think anybody who grew up playing sports. <laughs> some, I mean, yeah. unfortunately, that's just who you remain for the rest of your life. And I also have been binging during this time uh, seasons of bones and for those mm. who've never watched the series the main character is also very 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 competitive and i wonder what your what, what, what buddhist would say about competition given what you said about uh this relation in regards to the self and others because i think there's i think there's 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 levels to competition as far as it being kind of an apt kind of attitude to have. And, and I wonder what, what, what you would say about this. So, so, so what might say, so I'm listening to this, I'm listening to you speak and I'm a competitive person <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, well, I can realize that rewards are temple, right? Mm-hmm. I can also realize that what we are competing against is for the greater good, but it's the competition that kind of motivates Right. Yeah. And yeah. at the end game. And, and I believe in a fiction. Right. Mm-hmm. And in the sense that and this is kind of what I think outside of Buddha is like, oh, it is really a fiction that it's a competition. But there is something yeah. about the, there's a use to the competition <laughs> that allows yeah. me to to to, yeah. to 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 finish the task at hand. What, what do you make of that? Yeah, I think that you're right. It's like. I I know I think ideally I think so I think Buddhists would be like yeah it sometimes can be really motivating and can be a, an important story to tell but they like but also keep in mind that it's it's a story right so part of it is like you can be invested in a game and also at the same time realize that it's just a game and so I think Buddhists would be like yeah you know it's not like you have to stop playing the game, but you do kind of realize you see the game for what it really is. Like you don't, you're not tricked at any point. Uh, and I guess, I guess I, I would say there's different ways of being competitive. And I think one alternate way to like excel in a sport or something like that is like I I'm trying to think I wish I had a good example of 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 an athlete who had this kind of attitude but like some people are really hyper competitive and they're like well I want to be number 1 or whatever but some people are like you can have this attitude of like they're so good that they're just like they're mostly concerned with like just playing really well and they're kind of like they're like they're like yeah, you know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, but like I want to play just absolutely beautiful baseball or basketball or whatever like at just at the top of the top of my game, right? And then there you're kind of like you're kind of the the coming out on top is kind of secondary to this like just this aim of like excellent play or something like that. I know, I guess you know, it wouldn't be a it wouldn't be an interview about Buddhism unless I talked about <laughs> flow, right? You know, right, some, right, right. So sometimes people describe this the, the idealized sense of flow, and there it's like one of the things that kind of melts away is like the score and the crowd and the time, you know, the clock, like that all sort of melts away. And of course, you're engaged in a competitive activity, but like. 
you know, people who really like get, uh, get a jolt out of that might be like, yeah, I mean, obviously you want to, the game is set up so that you want to win, but like, I want to do this, this kind of, I'm going to be in this flow state where I kind of transcend all that stuff. So mindfulness, in addition to karma, mindfulness has also become a buzzword these days. And I, and I wonder if you can, can share with us the practice of mindfulness as well as the purpose. Yeah. So, so mindfulness, I guess, like just to sort of zoom out a little bit, I guess mindfulness is one type of meditation. And it's, in fact, a kind of family. So, but I think it's like, I just want to say sort of before it's like, definitely not all Buddhists meditate of any kind and not all meditation is mindfulness. So mindfulness is a kind of family of, of meditation, meditative practices, and you can be mindful of different things. So sometimes people are mindful of the body or their breath, or, you know, you can be mindful of a bunch of different stuff. As as a kind of buzzword, sometimes it kind of just means being careful or like aware so that, you know, you know, I could be like, oh, I'm making this soup and I want to be mindful of how much salt I put in. That just means I want to like pay attention to how much salt I'm in and be careful putting in and be careful. I, you know, I thought it was funny. It's like if you. If people, when people say they're doing something mindfully, sometimes you can be like, oh, you mean you're just doing it really slowly in a relaxed <laughs> way? Um, and so basically, it involves focused, sustained, attent- conscious attention to something. Um, and I think what a, a nice way to think about it is as a tool. So you can even in a non-Buddhist context, you can use it as a tool to like, like, I want to, I want to really focus on like the thoughts that are coming up. And the reason that I want to be focused on them is like, you know, I want to change them and I need to, I need to like pay close attention to them to see what's going on. So I can like start to fix it as a kind of like, you got to look really carefully for a for a sustained period of time at the problem before you start fixing it. So in a Buddhist context, you know, you might use it for like, if you're mindful of the body, for example. Um, so say I think that I'm getting too angry too quickly at, at people. Um, so if I pay really close attention to my body and I, and I kind of I am more aware of that, I can sort of notice when I'm getting angry much earlier and I can intervene much earlier and that makes it much easier to head off, you know, getting angry about something that I shouldn't get angry about because, you know, once I'm already angry, it's really hard because then I'm already mad. (laughs) But, you know, if it's if I can detect right when I'm starting to get angry, like you know, my heart rate's going up a little bit, my palms are getting sweaty, then I, you know, I can I can be like, okay, stop, Nick, Call, like just 
take it easy, whatever. And I has I have a chance of like heading it off. But I think the the key thing to keep in mind that is for mindfulness in a in a Buddhist context, the point is not just to like not feel as stressed or whatever. The point is to like you're using it as a tool to come to see this radical thing about how reality is not how it seemed and how the self is and how it seemed like yeah it's a tool for solving that big problem and you know it might have this other benefit of making you be less stressed out but i think in a buddhist context they would be like that's not really the point and that's not really what you should be aiming at so i i often you know think of it as an analogy to like if someone's a novelist and you sort of point out to them like, hey, you know, I read this article that like, you know, turns out writing novels like helps head off dementia. And the novelist might be like, cool. But like, that's a nice benefit. And you're like, well, is that why you write novels to to, to avoid getting dementia? And they'd be like, no, I write novels because I have some deep thing I want to express about the world, you know, whatever. I, they have these other aims. And I think mindfulness in a Buddhist context is a little bit like that. It's like their aim, it's in this whole context of solving this deeper problem about changing your orientation to the to the world. So Amos just, just came to mind, um, and, and I wonder if you can make sense of this uh, for me. I don't know if I have this right, but my memory says that that monks, when they eat, <laughs> practice mindfulness as they eat. And I, I wonder, I don't know where that just came from. <laughs> it came from somewhere. But I wonder if you can explain that. So what is happening in that moment? Because one would think, well, you, you know, you're eating like, you know, why would you practice mindfulness while you're eating? Uh, what what is what is going on there? So I mean, one there's a bunch of ways in which you could practice mindful eating, for example. So you know, one thing you might be mindful of is like you might be thinking of the source of all the the ingredients in the thing that you're eating, and like a Buddhist kind of reflect, reflection would be like, you know, you you can think about like all of the bugs that were killed in the harvesting of of the wheat and all of the workers that have to work a long time and all of the series of economic transactions are involved in like whatever and so there's all that stuff that you could you could be mindful of you could also be mindful of for example the taste experience and how it's temporary and fleeting and it's you know so there's there's all that kind of stuff that would would challenge your sense of the regular experience you have when just eating a meal. But typically they're not, for example, doing mind, mindful eating in the sense of like paying close attention to the combination of flavors. You know, it's not really an aesthetic appreciative thing. It's it's in service of coming to see that 
even this isolated experience that might even be kind of pleasurable uh, involves a lot of harm and a lot of suffering. It's sort of built into that, you know, that sip of coffee or whatever is actually a lot of suffering or built built into that that sip of coffee is who's experiencing it is there an experiencer it's look at it's temporary and you know and i i have this nice experience and then suddenly i want it again and then you know i want me to have it and i want the last sip and i don't want you to drink all the coffee so you could be mindful of all of that stuff going on so and so i think that's 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 a kind of more embedded buddhist way to be mindful of something like eating than like you know what you might think of as is like paying close attention to the flavors or something like that so i'm going to ask a question that's probably going to surprise you and surprise our listeners i i think it's it's, <laughs> it's a pg-13 kind of question you know exactly what i'm going to yeah. ask i w- i would be kind of disappointed if my partner was practicing mindfulness uh doing doing the uh let's say uh sexual intimacy mm-hmm. yeah is, yeah <laughs> is that a thing so there's a practice in in so there's a whole family of practices in tibetan buddhism called tantra you know right, it's, right, it also right. exists in india and whatever uh and that's usually involves it's not quite mindfulness but the basic idea is that you can use these typically negative or typically like um, very charged experiences. So they often involve either sex or other taboos or like just dis- like disgusting things about death and corpses or whatever. Um, but those those evoke very strong emotional responses and the ideas you can use if controlled in the right way you can use that to like solve the problem part of the reason you're no one so i would not advise anyone listening to this to do it (laughs) partly because you know it's very dangerous because if you screw it up you really screw up and you you sort of double down on your illusions and your attachments and all that stuff but you know a lot of the a lot of the stuff in buddhists especially in traditional texts they're not presuming you know someone in a kind of well functioning modern romantic partnership so you kind of have to adapt things to how that's going to work and i definitely you get you definitely get the sense of like you know if your partner's having like mindful sex you can kind of feel like oh i'm just you i'm just being used as a like a meditation tool or something like that and i think that's a real danger like i think you know sometimes i meet buddhists and you get this weird sense of like you know something bad happens and they're like kind of saying things that they feel bad for you but you kind of be like I don't know. You just you just want there to be less suffering in the world. And you see that I am a location of suffering. And so you don't want that. But like you you kind of feel like you're missing like I want you to like care about me specifically, you know, but, you know, whether you can accommodate that in at, at the end of the day in the in a Buddhist framework is is 
is something to think through. But I think that you're right that it's like, especially when involving other people, it's there are kind times when it's messed up to like use them as an object of of mindfulness, especially without their knowledge while you're doing something together with them. It's not like they're like far away reflecting on their desire for you and trying to work through it but they're like you're like doing something together (laughs) right right so i don't want to sound self-helpy with this this, with this question but you discuss other practices and and purposes in the in the latter part of your book and and i wonder given what we are facing today with the COVID 19 virus what what practices would you recommend to us and and why? Uh, it's always hard to <laughs> the it's sign, always hard to the sign. Yeah. I mean, partly it's like it's always hard to recommend practices because it's kind of like giving advice to people about what to do is it's hard even when you know the person. Right, right, right. Uh, Give us some uh, so options. Like I guess hard. here are some options. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think it's partly hard because like. You know, some people are like stuck alone and some people are stuck mm-hmm. with other people. Right. <laughs> and those right. are really different situations. <laughs> right, right. I guess it's like a general thing in, in Buddhism that I think, you know, I, I really like is this idea of um, using uh, what we normally think of as obstacles or, you know, problems as opportunities to bring about some change. So, I mean, you know, there's a lot of reflections, for example, about when you have an illness, for example, about using that as an opportunity to reflect on the impermanent nature of the body and, you know, you you know, like confronting and getting comfortable with these kinds of, um, these kinds of facts of facts of life. Um, but even, you know, if you're stuck alone, for example, thinking about like, oh, can I use this space to examine life it, it more carefully? Or, you know, like I sort of alluded to before, I think it's a really good chance to reflect on the ways in which we're, our lives are intertwined that we I even I previously took for granted before, like, you know, people used to think like, oh, yeah, some people can get a disease or these people can get fired and and everything can just go on as usual, except for the grocery store workers are are fired. And you're like, no, that like there's this ripple effect that like actually we we were always embedded in this complex web of dependencies and and so i think it's like a little bit philosophical but i think getting thinking through not just thinking through but like really getting a feel for like how embedded we are and how interrelated we are and getting the emotional response of like yeah well actually my doing well can't really fully be separated from other people doing well or for the from the environment doing well in a certain way that like i might think that like 
I could win and these other people could lose and that could just go on forever. But like, actually that can't happen. <laughs> right. Right. No, I think that, I think and that's maybe, right. Maybe yeah. that's not practical enough, but like. <laughs> no, no, I think that's, I think that's right. Right. I think, I think it kind of points to what you were discussing earlier about mental habits. Right. Yeah. You're, you're totally, you're totally, you're totally right. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing that relation in ways in which I thought that I, I always saw it, but r- really, really seeing it now um, has been has been more than more than eye opening. Yeah, and I think that like like I think I would have said before, intellectually in an abstract sense, I would have been like, yeah, yeah, we're all interconnected, blah blah blah. Like that's like such an easy sentence to say in the abstract, but like like the tibetan term for for meditate that gets translated as meditate colloquially just means to get used to something so if you like move to a colder place and you just say like oh i got used to the weather so when you're meditating one way to think about meditating is like you're trying to get used to something. So it's like you might have the idea abstractly or whatever, but like, you know, to really integrate it or like, you know, feel it in 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 all its complexity it is a is a hard task and you kind of have to sit with it in a certain way. And I'm I'm saying things that like connote meditation, but I think it's an opportunity to try to be like just you know, take some space and be like, wow, there are a bunch of ways in which I, I'm dependent on other people and vulnerable that I just had not ever reflected on. So how did you get interested in, in Buddhism? So I was raised Catholic. And around the time of my confirmation, I started to think, well, I don't, maybe I don't think this is true (laughs) (laughs) or whatever. I, you know, I just, it wasn't, people were, people were expressing having certain experiences that I was not having. So as I sort of, you know, alluded to, like, it didn't even really occur to me that someone could not be a religion. I just was like, oh, I'm not Catholic, but I must be some other <laughs> religion. So I started reading, you know, I read the Quran. I read about, you know, you know, Sufism and Sikhism and whatever. So uh, and, you know, I read about Buddhism and particularly I read Shantideva. Uh, and I just thought, oh, yeah, this this kind of makes sense. And this is a kind of I, you know, I got the sense that like even some Christians will say that it's like it's not like a set of claims that you're like, oh, this is true, but you're like, this is a kind of framework within which I feel like I could productively struggle. <laughs> and like, uh, so then, you know, I just got into Buddhism uh, in that way, because I just started reading books and it kind of made sense. How old were you? Uh, this was in high school. Yeah. So I, you know, it's like, I feel weird, but it's like I had, I read Shantideva before I even heard of Aristotle or anything. So it's, <laughs> It's funny when people are like comparing it the other way, just by accident, I sort of happened to be exposed to the one before the other. So professional philosophy has has traditionally been solely focused on the Western world. And but I'm beginning to see kind of a shift going on, whether someone might describe it as a small shift. It still seems to be kind of a shift going on, uh, whereas philosophers in the West are beginning to 
at least consult and engage Eastern philosophical texts and ideas. And I, and I wonder, what, do you, what are your thoughts about the shift and what are your hopes, if you have any? So, I mean, the thing that you're describing, I see too, and I think it's great. One of the things that's tough, and I think this happens in, in you know, other, thing, other things that used to be marginalized and are becoming more mainstream, is I kind of get this where it's like specialists can get a little territorial, especially if you're like, well, I've been working on this for 20 years and I spent, <laughs> right, yes. I was really hard and no one gave a shit. And now suddenly <laughs> right. other people are going to, you know, read a couple of things and then, you know, and I think that's like, there, there, there's a tension there because you're like, well, it's good. And it's also kind of sad. And, it, you know, I think I, some of the challenges I see are like, like with a lot of these other, you know, quote unquote, marginalized stuff is like, Sometimes it doesn't actually fit that well into the framework. And the interesting part means like you have to question that that framework. So sometimes when people ask me, for example, you know, there's lots of someone will have a volume and they'll be like, oh, we had a volume on X and we need a chapter on Buddhism and X. And, you know, sometimes you're like, they'll be like, well, what's the Buddhist view on X? And you're like, well, first of all, Buddhism is not a single view, whatever. whatever. But uh, you also might be like, the the view is probably going to be like, I reject the framework that makes this a problem. <laughs> so, so I think it's, it's nice. Um, but you have, people have to be open to more radical changes. Like I've talked to people who are like very, you know, have this impulse that I also had, but I'm like now more sensitive to like how it's going to go. So they might be like, Oh, we're going to get some analytic philosophers and some philosophers from China and they're going to get together and they're going to talk. And you're like, mm, I think they're going to talk past each other or they're not going to, you know, like you have to, you know, getting people on the same page is, is hard. But my hope is that like the, the sort of questioning of the, the problems or the standard questions of philosophy can be themselves questioned. And like, that makes philosophy to me more exciting and more interesting. Uh, and there's, you know, it makes it harder to like, have specialized little literatures. But I think it's, it's nice. And I, you know, I, my hope is Someday people could, you know, casually refer to Shantideva or Dogen the way they casually refer to Aristotle or Hume, that that would be kind of like part of what people accept as you kind of know the gist of what someone's getting at or something like that. Like, I think I would like that to be the case. So uh, according to the Internet, you (laughs) are a rock musician and an illustrator of comics. You know, I, I honestly don't know where to begin with this question. <laughs> I mean, I, I want to know how did you enter into those worlds? So that's the first part of this question. And then I'm, I'm also interested in how, how important do you think hobbies are uh, to live in a life of the mind? I really like, I think there's something so great about hobbies. Uh, <laughs> and I think sometimes it's like, uh, you know, my, my dissertation advisor used to say something about how like, she thinks that people do often do what they love second most for a living. <laughs> and I've sometimes speculated it's like maybe they love it second most because they do it for a living. Right, right. I like I do like that it's like when you have a hobby, it's like you have just this huge freedom. So it's like if I were like, oh, I want to record an album of static. It means so much to me or whatever. Like I could do it. <laughs> and it's like I don't have to worry about it affecting my income or my health insurance. Or I can just do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so and then for music, I kind of like that. You know, I do mostly instrumental music and I do like that. It's like it's nonverbal. It goes at its own pace and it seems very different from philosophy. It's like uh, non-propositional emotive. <laughs> that's what I wanted. That's what I, I need that as a counterbalance to like keep my sanity. Although, you know, I haven't 
I've just been now getting back to it. So I feel like I lost a lot of my sanity in not doing mm-hmm. it. What, what, what instrument do you play? I sort of half play many instruments. <laughs> uh, that's, I Jack used to of play all the, trades, master of none. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. I used to play the drums, but it's like, it's hard to play the drums and not have everyone around you hate you. <laughs> mm-hmm. right. So I haven't played in many years, especially, you know, so now I, I tend to play things more that are like, you could you could play through headphones. Oh, so like lately I've been trying to get back into that and I've been um, trying to get back into drawing, actually. Uh, what is your what is your focus in regards to comics? You know, I'd like to do more comics that are related to philosophy, actually. Like, I think it's a good way to make texts accessible. And, you know, you know, philosophy is often, you know, in a kind of dialogue. And so, you know, I I I I like comics. Comics and I find it a I find it less intimidating to read than just like a whole page of text. Right. Um, who's your so who's, I, yeah, I, who's your favorite illustrator? Uh, there's there's a guy named what's his name? He did um, a book called Skyscrapers of the Midwest. That's one of my favorite. It's Joshua Cotter. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that he's he's my favorite. Um, and wh- why is he your favorite? Um. Well, I guess it's like I grew up in the Midwest, so it's like that's set there, and it's like kind of an interesting. Um, you know, it's about this, um, you know, this character who had a much worse childhood than I did, but a certain, certain kinds of similar getting made fun of, you know, trying to fit in, uh, you know, as a, you know, as a boy who doesn't really fit in with a lot of the boy stuff going on in, in your town. Um, so I kind of, a lot of that kind of resonated with me and I like a lot of comics that are, um, you know, when I was a kid, I really loved Peanuts. Mm-hmm. And part of what I loved about Peanuts is like, they're kids and they're like, they're just like, sometimes they're just sad. Right. And right. It, for me, it was like very relatable. And it's like, they're not <laughs> sad because something particular happened. And it, I was like, oh, I see. Sometimes you feel sad and like, what, like sort of reading sort of what seemed like cutesy characters sort of deal with this real emotion I kind of liked. And so I like that in just in general in comics. Well, Nick, thank you so much for this conversation. I learned a lot and enjoyed every minute of it. Thank you so thank much. Thank you so much for having me. It's great. Uh, it's great to talk to you again. It's been too long. Been too long. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.